Welcome to Zero to CEO, where seasoned entrepreneurs will teach you how to succeed. I'm your host, Jason Sherman. In today's episode of Zero to CEO, I speak to John St. Pierre, and we're going to talk about inspiring entrepreneurship and overcoming failures. Welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me, Jason. Awesome. And so we're going to talk a little bit about your 25-year journey, which is filled with both successes and valuable lessons from failure. I always like to hear the failure over the successes because the successes are so great. But the failures is where our listeners are going to be able to learn something, right? So I want to kind of go into that first before we talk about the fun stuff. Um, give me an idea as to maybe one of the biggest mistakes that you would have liked to avoid during your 25-year journey, but you didn't, and how others can maybe avoid that mistake. Yeah, that's an easy one, Jason. Don't lose your company after building it for 15 years. That'd be the place I would start, right? And you're right. Failure is a prerequisite for success. We have to talk about the failure because it's through those learnings you figure out all the lessons you need and the learnings you need to advance and, and move forward. So well, it's a lot harder when you're in the midst of that failure uh, to see the the shiny uh, opportunity that's ahead of you. But uh, but yeah, I had a failure of building a company for 15 years, uh, pretty large. Uh, we were north of $50 million in global revenues, wow. uh, very successful culture, business, everything was going great and um, and lost it and lost it by making some careless mistakes or trying to grow my business too quick. Uh, and uh, ultimately, uh, seven months after bringing on some investment capital, uh, from uh, from a private equity firm, I was fired, and uh, from the very wow. company that I had co-founded. So tough learning. You're up there with Steve Jobs, and now maybe Sam Altman, and a whole bunch of other people who lost their companies, right? So I mean, it's it's pretty, it's it's not normal, but it's pretty, it's not rare, right? It happened to the the Uber CEO Travis Kalanick. I mean, why do you think this happens? Like, what? How can someone avoid that from happening? Like, what? What? What should? What are the flags they should be looking out for? Yeah, I think in all scenarios, they lost confidence and control of a board, right? Or potentially lost, you know, uh, control of their equity in, in a particular position. So a lot of founders start companies and think that the object is to raise capital so you can grow your company. Well, by raising capital, you're also diluting your own equity. You're diluting your influence and control over a business. And a lot of small and medium-sized business owners need to really respect that principle of protecting and growing your equity within your own business and building the capital within your own business so you can self-finance your own growth to control that equity in business as you grow. Yeah, and and a lot of um, founders, um, myself included, like to try and get super shares or like, you know, double voting rights and things like that. Is that something that is possible for most founders so that they could avoid that trap of, well, I lost 50% to equity, but I still have more voting control uh, in the in the boardroom? Is that something that's possible? And if so, is that what you tried to do or? Yeah, 100%. Well, I, I didn't try to do that. I guess that's one learning, right? Is I didn't okay. respect enough what that meant. I felt invincible. I felt, look, I co-founded this company. Uh, this is my vision and strategy. No <laughs> one's going to ever replace me. This can't happen, right? Uh, so I felt invincible, uh, carelessly. But I think there's a lot of ways to protect. A lot of entrepreneurs start their businesses, Jason. And the first thing they do is they look for partners and they dole out equity to partners. They bring on key employees. They give them equity. They raise capital. They give them equity. The next thing you know, they've lost control of their own business. And there's a lot of ways to structure those differently, to your point, uh, that that entrepreneurs need to learn about because there's a lot of ways to skin that cap. But the best way that I talk to entrepreneurs about is build your own capital, have a business where you can build your own cash flow and your own capital for reinvestment. So you don't have to go hat in hand to banks to get debt 
uh, investors to bring on capital. There are ways to do that as well in certain industries. So I want to talk about that for a second. You know, my recent startup that I'm currently about a year in running, I had to bring on a partner for capital. Like you just mentioned, I had to give out equity more than I wanted to. I could not grow this business without the capital. It's impossible because I chose a particular business that doesn't make revenue. It's a consumer-based app, right? So in order for me to grow, I need a lot more users and then I need to be able to raise VC money to then potentially earn some revenue down the road. Mm -hmm. It sounds like what you're saying is an entrepreneur has to almost choose a product or idea or platform or whatever that they're going to build that maybe doesn't resonate with the vision that they want to have, but it leads into a revenue stream. So what's that line between passions, right? Because like I have a passionate idea versus, well, I'm not passionate about this idea, but it's going to make some money. What's that? How do you decide that? Because that's a tough Yeah, I think, I think a lot of times entrepreneurs get, you know, they have this glamorized vision of building this app that's going to get critical mass, get millions of users across the globe. They're going to be using this thing. But that's a long road between here and there, right? And so, you know, you, you mentioned Travis and, and Uber a little bit earlier. If you think back through that business, obviously he had a lot of funding to be able to go after what he was trying to accomplish. But if you're trying to start something today, you have to have proof of concept. You have to show you can monetize what you're actually building. And sometimes starting a lot slower and smaller doesn't mean you can't have that vision uh, ahead of time. I think way too many times I was going to start with that big vision up front. They raise capital up front only to find out in order for them to get to critical mass in their certain technology product or whatnot. They got to bring on significant more capital, which further dilutes them. And there becomes a point of diminishing returns where the vision that you particularly had you own a very, very small piece of it ultimately down the road. That doesn't right. mean it can't be successful, but it's a long road to get there. And I think ultimately, you know, entrepreneurs sometimes underestimate what they can do in 10 years, but they try and do that in one year. They try and get that right. accomplished <laughs> too fast and try and raise too much capital, go get it done and ultimately face the consequences of that. Yeah. And I definitely did not fall into that trap. I've been around this block for 20 years, so I'm definitely doing it slowly and surely and and, and not raising VC money. Um, but so you mentioned something about... Um, you know, entrepreneurs try to do 10 years in one year. And what do you think about that saying where like, it's better to have a piece of the elephant rather than the whole mouse, right? I mean, you're saying that they're getting diluted, they're losing a lot of their equity. But what if you have 20% of your company left, but that company turns out to be $100 billion, and now you own all this equity? Is that not so great? I mean, what what's the downside? No, I think that's fantastic. Um, I think the, the point to mention, I think there's a lot of different businesses, right? When you start talking about technology products and companies, I think it's a little bit different than mainstream, small, medium-sized businesses that are trying okay. to grow. I think there's two different types of companies and approaches. To your point, if you go into your venture thinking, look, what I ultimately want to have is 20% of this mega company, mm -hmm. and you want to go after that, uh, you know, go for it. And, and I, have, I have no objections to it. The problem is with that is along that journey where you are investing your heart and blood, sweat and tears into this business, you don't fully own it yourself. Mm -hmm. uh, and there's other influences that come in. And unfortunately, as you mentioned, there's a lot of case studies where the person who co-founded that business or founded that business isn't necessarily the person who actually benefits from its uh, ultimate destination as well. It's a very dangerous, treacherous terrain. Uh, and you got to be careful not to fall off the cliff. It's tough, man. It's, it's, it's such a fine line, especially these days with how 
uh, VC money is all but dried up in terms of the, the, the tech landscape. It's just really hard to raise money these days. So let's Jason, say- you, you make a good point. I'd like to just touch on that though. Yeah. Your point, there's a lot of companies that raise some angel money or some first series money that today cannot raise money because they haven't generated cash flow because they haven't proven they can. And th- those who have proven they can generate cash flow are getting the subsequent rounds of investors. So it's, when things tighten up, where does your company sit? And I think that's right. a very important thing for people to think about. Yeah, I like that. And that, and that's kind of where I'm at too. I'm, I'm in the process of trying to monetize earlier rather than later. Cause a lot of people say, Oh, we'll monetize later once we have a million users. But by that time, you know, how much money have you spent and how much money do you need? Correct. So you mentioned small and medium-sized businesses. I'm sure a lot of people that listen, uh, as far as I know, they, they're small, medium-sized businesses. Some are you know, successful entrepreneurs. But how do you go from, like, say, a lifestyle business owner, which is very different than like a tech startup owner, right? How do you go from that lifestyle business owner to a highly successful CEO or ch- chairperson? How, what's that transition? Like, I'm sure you did it. So tell, yeah. us, how, tell us how to do it. Yeah, I think that's a big entrepreneurial trap, Jason. A lot of entrepreneurs, they're in their startup phase. They have large ambitions to build this company, be you know a very highly successful, highly performing business. And as they go through those years, the blood, sweat, and tears and not paying themselves, and they get to a point where they finally are earning income. They have a nice lifestyle business. They finally buy the home that they're looking for, whatever it may be. And they start looking ahead and they go, okay, now do I want to take my business and 10 exit? And how do I do that? If I do that, I got to hire more employees. I get you enter the growth paradox. You need more customers, you need more employees, more problems. Everything starts happening. Do I need more capital? If I get capital, I'm going to get diluted. So you start getting into this zone where it's, it's a pretty tough terrain to go from a lifestyle performing business to a high performance business, but there's ways to do it. And I talk about it in my, in my new book, The Seven Principles of Entrepreneurial Success, the principles you need to execute and have in place. Yeah, in I, wanna, to- I, wanna, I wanna hear about those. So, so can you give us some sort of uh, maybe three of the seven? Yeah, absolutely. Principle one, we already talked about, protect and grow your equity. Principle two, build your own capital. Principle three, reinvest smartly. Principle okay. four, build a culture of entrepreneurship. Principle five, protect the house. Principle six, access your owner's liquidity that's on your balance sheet of the company. And principle seven, move from CEO to chairperson. So how, can you give us maybe a couple of sentences on each? Yeah. Yeah. So we talked about the build and protect your equity. So I'll leave that one to the side for a second. Yep. Build your own capital. I think a lot of entrepreneurs don't know how fast their company can afford to grow. Mm-hmm. So if your company can only afford to grow in its own cash flow 5%, but you're trying to grow 20%, where's that other 15% come from? Right. It comes from bank debt, investors, you dilute yourself and affects principle one. Reinvest smartly. That's where I got caught a little bit as we were growing. And I was reinvesting in all these new business segments, new areas, new divisions. because I wanted to get there so fast. Well, a lot of those consume cash flow, which reduced our ability to grow, which reduced my ability to protect my equity because I had to bring on more investors to keep growing all these business <laughs> units. So that's where we invest smartly. Uh, build a culture of entrepreneurship. You know, today's landscape, you got to have your, your team feeling and acting like owners of your business. That's the only way to really propel your business from a lifestyle business to a high performance business. Like we talked right. about, people in the organization are going to take over different segments. The CEO can replace himself in all the different roles that they fill, and the company continue to grow and prosper. You're bringing like, them on like par- partners, almost. I mean, co-founders are a certain thing, but team players, partners, people that like feel like everything they do for the company has an impact of some way, and then they benefit from that impact versus just like an employee who's just like a contractor. Exactly. I mean, today's workforce wants more. And a lot of entrepreneurs hire people thinking, what's my return on investment on hiring this employee? But when do we ever reverse the script as entrepreneurs and say, what's the employee's return on investment for coming to work for my business? What are they going to get? How can I make them feel a part of this thing? And 
building a culture of entrepreneurship is essential. Well, let me ask you a question about that, because this is something that's coming up for me and it comes up for a lot of people and I get asked. So, you know, let's say you own a hundred percent of a new company, you start it, you give out 10% to a co-founder, you give out maybe 5% to another co-founder, and then you take in some money and you give out say 30%, maybe you're left with like 55% of the company. You're already kind of at that point where you're, you're starting to be careful, right? But now you, you want to bring in all these different people and you have to give out stock options. I mean, you have to, because if not, they're like, well, I can get paid anywhere. If I'm going to work for you, I, I need to own a piece. How do you do that if you've already given out so much equity? Yeah, I think the best kept secret in providing an opportunity for your employees to earn equity in your business is phantom shares. You know, one of the things I've done a lot is you have class A shares, where there's the voting shares of the company. You just articulate a potential cap table there. You can execute phantom shares, which can actually have a vesting period over a period of time, but also have a minimum threshold value. So if the current value of the company today is a million dollars and I'm bringing on some new employees, I want to help us grow the business. Why well, I'm hoping to bring them on to help me grow the company to 10 million. They shouldn't participate in the first million. Help me grow the business. So how can there be a minimum threshold value, a vesting period over time that if they leave the business before the period of vesting, that they don't earn those shares and executable upon a transaction in the future where we all win. Uh, so get them tied into the growth aspect of the business, so not necessarily the actual real equity. Right. And that's and I've used Phantom Shares in the past, maybe a decade ago. I haven't used them in a while. So so in this case, for people listening, because they're probably going to ask me later, I'm going to just send this, this, uh, this podcast episode and say, so in this case, let's say you want to go from a million dollars to a hundred million dollar value, right? Yep. Are you saying that I would issue, you know, a thousand Phantom Shares uh, per year? to an employee for every year they join or is it vested for a four-year period they earn the total amount of phantom shares say ten thousand phantom shares in four years only if we reach a certain value is that what you're saying yeah the vesting period we've used for example uh, let's say the current company value is a million dollars i may set the threshold of the company at two million dollars if you don't get us beyond two million dollars you don't participate I i really want you to high growth us like help us build this business so the threshold gets set And then we do a five-year vesting period where it's a cliff. So the first three years, you got to stay in the business for three years before you start participating. But after year three, you now have 60% of the shares we've allocated to you. After year four, 80%. After year five, you're fully vested at 100% of the thousand units or whatever the units are that you're, you're allocating towards. Got it. And then when you do finally give out the shares, that comes out of the overall equity of the company, I'm assuming. And everyone gets diluted. No, because they're phantom, they're phantom class Bs. So in the waterfall, if ever you ex- uh, execute your business, uh, excuse me, because there's a transaction on your business where you're selling your business, you would bonus pay out those phantom equity shares, almost like a bonus payroll, but it's based on the equity of the business. The oh, it's just, oh, just va- value of the business in cash. Yep. Got it. Okay. Yeah, it's basically executed almost like a, a cash bonus at the time of a transaction, but the formula of that cash bonus is based on the valuation of the business. Interesting. Very fascinating stuff. People are going to listen to this episode for sure because I'm going to share it to everybody. Uh, tell us a little bit about where people can find out more about what you do and how they can work with you directly. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, I have a new book that's out, The $100 Million Journey, nice. uh, your talking. guide to growing the business of your dreams without going off the cliff. And it covers the seven principles. And there's really a how-to in here too with a workbook and functions on how to really evaluate your equity, how a phantom equity plan gets designed and the like. Mm-hmm. So you can find that on Amazon, uh, The $100 Million Journey, or at 100mjourney.com. That is great. I'm going to put that in the show notes. I love that book. We were just talking about going to $100 million, so it was perfect. (laughs) Thanks, John. I appreciate it. Hope everyone enjoyed this episode, and we'll see you guys in the next one. Hope you enjoyed the episode. If you learned something today, please support this podcast by subscribing to it, sharing it with your friends, and leaving a five-star review. You can learn more about me at jasonsherman.org. 
where you'll find information about my book, also called Strap On Your Boots, available on Amazon, as well as my course called Startup Essentials on Udemy or Skillshare. I'll see you at next week's episode.